The Vicar of Wakefield by Oliver Goldsmith, read for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton. Chapter 28. Happiness and misery rather the result of prudence than of virtue in this life. Temporal evils or felicities being regarded by heaven as things merely in themselves trifling and unworthy its care in the distribution. I had now been confined more than a fortnight, but had not since my arrival been visited by my dear Olivia, and I greatly longed to see her. Having communicated my wishes to my wife, the next morning the poor girl entered my apartment, leaning on her sister's arm. The change which I saw in her countenance struck me. The numberless graces that once resided there were now fled, and the hand of death seemed to have moulded every feature to alarm me. Her temples were sunk, her forehead was tense, and a fatal paleness sat upon her cheek. "'I am glad to see thee, my dear,' cried I. "'But why this dejection, Livy? I hope, my love, you have too great a regard for me to permit disappointment thus to undermine a life which I prize as my own. Be cheerful, child, and we yet may see happier days.' "'You have ever, sir,' replied she, "'been kind to me.' and it adds to my pain that I shall never have an opportunity of sharing that happiness you promise. Happiness, I fear, is no longer reserved for me here, and I long to be rid of a place where I have only found distress. Indeed, sir, I wish you would make a proper submission to Mr. Thornhill. It may in some measure induce him to pity you, and it will give me relief in dying." Never, child, replied I, never will I be brought to acknowledge my daughter a prostitute. For though the world may look upon your offence with scorn, let it be mine to regard it as a mark of credulity, not of guilt. My dear, I am no way miserable in this place, however dismal it may seem. And be assured that while you continue to bless me by living, he shall never have my consent to make you more wretched by marrying another. After the departure of my daughter, my fellow-prisoner, who was by at this interview, sensibly enough expostulated upon my obstinacy in refusing a submission which promised to give me freedom. He observed that the rest of my family was not to be sacrificed to the peace of one child alone, and she the only one who had offended me. Beside, added he, I don't know if it be just thus to obstruct the union of man and wife, which you do at present, by refusing to consent to a match which you cannot hinder but may render unhappy. Sir, replied I, you are acquainted with the man that oppresses us. I am very sensible that no submission I could make could procure me liberty even for an hour. I am told that even in this very room a debtor of his, no later than last year, died for want. But though my submission and approbation could transfer me from hence to the most beautiful apartment he is possessed of, yet I would grant neither, as something whispers me that it would be giving a sanction to adultery. While my daughter lives, no other marriage of his shall ever be legal in my eye. Were she removed, indeed, I should be the basest of men from any resentment of my own to attempt putting asunder those who wish for an union. No, villain as he is, I should then wish him married, to prevent the consequences of his future debaucheries. But now should I not be the most cruel of all fathers to sign an instrument which must deny my child to the grave, merely to avoid a prison myself? and thus to escape one pang, break my child's heart with a thousand? He acquiesced in the justice of this answer, but could not avoid observing that he feared my daughter's life was already too much wasted to keep me long a prisoner. 
However, continued he, though you refuse to submit to the nephew, I hope you have no objections to laying your case before the uncle, who has the first character in the kingdom for everything that is just and good. I would advise you to send him a letter by the post, intimating all his nephew's ill usage, and my life for it that in three days you shall have an answer. I thanked him for the hint, and instantly set about complying. But I wanted paper, and unluckily all our money had been laid out that morning in provisions. However, he supplied me. For the three ensuing days I was in a state of anxiety, to know what reception my letter might meet with. But in the meantime was frequently solicited by my wife to submit to any conditions rather than remain here, and every hour received repeated accounts of the decline of my daughter's health. The third day and the fourth arrived, but I received no answer to my letter. The complaints of a stranger against a favourite nephew were no way likely to succeed, so that these hopes soon vanished like all my former. My mind, however, still supported itself through confinement, and bad air began to make a visible alteration in my health, and my arm that had suffered in the fire grew worse. My children, however, sat by me, and while I was stretched on my straw, read to me by turns, or listened and wept at my instructions. But my daughter's health declined faster than mine. Every message from her contributed to increase my apprehensions and pain. The fifth morning, after I had written the letter which was sent to Sir William Thornhill, I was alarmed with an account that she was speechless. Now it was that confinement was truly painful to me. My soul was bursting from its prison to be near the pillow of my child, to comfort, to strengthen her, to receive her last wishes, and teach her soul the way to heaven. Another account came. She was expiring, and yet I was debarred the small comfort of weeping by her. My fellow prisoner, some time after, came with the last account. He bade me be patient. She was dead. The next morning he returned and found me with my two little ones, now my only companions, who were using all their innocent efforts to comfort me. They entreated to read to me, and bade me not to cry, for I was now too old to weep. "'And is not my sister an angel now, papa?' cried the eldest. "'And why, then, are you sorry for her? I wish I were an angel out of this frightful place, if my papa were with me.' "'Yes,' added my youngest darling, "'heaven, where my sister is, is a finer place than this.' and there are none but good people there, and the people here are very bad. Mr. Jenkinson interrupted their harmless prattle by observing that now my daughter was no more, I should seriously think of the rest of my family and attempt to save my own life, which was every day declining, for want of necessary and wholesome air. He added that it was now incumbent upon me to sacrifice any pride or resentment of my own to the welfare of those who depended on me for support and that I was now, both by reason and justice, obliged to try to reconcile my landlord. "'Heaven be praised,' replied I, "'there is no pride left me now. I should detest my own heart if I saw either pride or resentment lurking here. On the contrary, as my oppressor has been once my parishioner, I hope one day to present him up an unpolluted soul at the eternal tribunal.' "'No, sir, I have no resentment now.' and though he has taken from me what I held dearer than all his treasures, though he has wrung my heart, for I am sick almost to fainting, very sick, my fellow-prisoner, yet that shall never inspire me with vengeance. 
I am now willing to approve his marriage, and if this submission can do him any pleasure, let him know that if I have done him any injury, I am sorry for it. Mr. Jenkinson took pen and ink and wrote down my submission nearly as I had expressed it, to which I signed my name. My son was employed to carry the letter to Mr. Thornhill, who was then at his seat in the country. He went and in about six hours returned with a verbal answer. He had some difficulty, he said, to get a sight of his landlord, as the servants were insolent and suspicious, but he accidentally saw him as he was going out upon business, preparing for his marriage, which was to be in three days. He continued to inform us that he stepped up in the humblest manner and delivered the letter, which, when Mr. Thornhill had read, he said that all our submission was now too late and unnecessary that he had heard of our application to his uncle, which met with the contempt it deserved, and, as for the rest, that all future applications should be directed to his attorney, not to him. He observed, however, that as he had a very good opinion of the discretion of the two young ladies, they might have been the most agreeable intercessors. "'Well, sir,' I said to my fellow-prisoner, "'you now discover the temper of the man that oppresses me. He can at once be facetious and cruel.' but let him use me as he will. I shall soon be free, in spite of all his bolts to restrain me. I am now drawing towards an abode that looks brighter as I approach it. This expectation cheers my afflictions, and though I leave an helpless family of orphans behind me, yet they will not be utterly forsaken. Some friend, perhaps, will be found to assist them for the sake of their poor father, and some may charitably relieve them for the sake of their heavenly father. Just as I spoke, my wife, whom I had not seen that day before, appeared with looks of terror, and making efforts but unable to speak. "'Why, my love,' cried I, "'why will you thus increase my afflictions by your own? What, though no submissions can turn our severe mister, though he has doomed me to die in this place of wretchedness, and though we have lost a darling child, yet still you will find comfort in your other children, when I shall be no more?' We have indeed lost, returned she, a darling child, my Sophia, my dearest, is gone, snatched from us, carried off by ruffians. How, madam, cried my fellow-prisoner, Miss Sophia, carried off by villains, sure it cannot be. She could only answer with a fixed look and a flood of tears. But one of the prisoner's wives, who was present and came in with her, gave us a more distinct account. She informed us that, as my wife, my daughter, and herself were taking a walk together on the great road a little way out of the village, a post-chaise and pair drove up to them, and instantly stopped, upon which a well-dressed man, but not Mr. Thornhill, stepping out, clasped my daughter round the waist, and, forcing her in, bid the postillion drive on, so that they were out of sight in a moment. "'Now,' cried I, "'the sum of misery is made up.' nor is it in the power of anything on earth to give me another pang. What? Not one left. Not to leave me one. The monster, the child that was next my heart. She had the beauty of an angel, and almost the wisdom of an angel. But support that woman, nor let her fall. Not to leave me one. Alas, my husband, said my wife, you seem to want comfort even more than I. Our distresses are great, but I could bear this and more, if I saw you but easy. They may take away my children, and all the world, if they leave me but you. My son, who was present, endeavoured to moderate our grief. He bade us take comfort, for he hoped that we might still have reason to be thankful. My child, cried I, 
Look round the world and see if there be any happiness left me now. Is not every ray of comfort shut out, while all our bright prospects only lie beyond the grave? My dear father, returned he, I hope there is still something that will give you an interval of satisfaction, for I have a letter from my brother George. What of him, child? interrupted I. Does he know our misery? I hope my boy is exempt from any part of what his wretched family suffers. Yes, sir, returned he, is perfectly gay, cheerful, and happy. His letter brings nothing but good news. He is the favourite of his colonel, who promises to procure him the very next lieutenancy that becomes vacant. And are you sure of all this? cried my wife. Are you sure that nothing ill has befallen my boy? Nothing, indeed, madam, returned my son. You shall see the letter, which will give you the highest pleasure. And if anything can procure you comfort, I am sure that will. But are you sure, still repeated she, that the letter is from himself, and that he is really so happy? Yes, madam, replied he, it is certainly his, and he will one day be the credit and support of our family. Then I thank Providence, cried she, that my last letter to him has miscarried. Yes, my dear, continued she, turning to me, I will now confess that though the hand of heaven is sore upon us in other instances, it has been favourable here. By the last letter I wrote my son, which was in the bitterness of anger, I desired him upon his mother's blessing, and if he had the heart of a man, to see justice done his father and sister, and avenge our cause. But thanks be to him that directs all things, it has miscarried, and I am at rest. Woman, cried I, thou hast done very ill and at another time my reproaches might have been more severe. Oh, what a tremendous gulf hath thou escaped, that would have buried both thee and him in endless ruin! Providence, indeed, has here been kinder to us than we to ourselves. It has reserved that son to be the father and protector of my children when I shall be away. How unjustly did I complain of being stripped of every comfort, when still I hear that he is happy and insensible of our afflictions! still kept in reserve to support his widowed mother and to protect his brothers and sisters. But what sisters has he left? He has no sisters now. They are all gone, robbed from me, and I am undone. Father, interrupted my son, I beg you will give me leave to read his letter. I know it will please you. Upon which, with my permission, he read as follows. Honoured sir, I have called off my imagination a few moments from the pleasures that surround me, to fix it upon objects that are still more pleasing, the dear little fireside at home. My fancy draws that harmless group as listening to every line of this with great composure. I view those faces with delight which never felt the deforming hand of ambition or distress. But whatever your happiness may be at home, I am sure it will be some addition to it, to hear that I am perfectly pleased with my situation, and every way happy here. Our regiment is countermanded, and is not to leave the kingdom. The colonel, who professes himself my friend, takes me with him to all companies where he is acquainted, and after my first visit I generally find myself received with increased respect upon repeating it. I danced last night with Lady G, and could I forget you know whom, I might be perhaps successful. But it is my fate still to remember others, while I am myself forgotten by most of my absent friends, and in this number I fear, sir, that I must consider you, for I have long expected the pleasure of a letter from home to no purpose. Olivia and Sophia promised to write, but seem to have forgotten me. Tell them they are two arrant little baggages, and that I am this moment in a most violent passion with them. 
Yet still I know not how, though I want to bluster a little, my heart is respondent only to softer emotions. Then tell them, sir, that after all I love them affectionately, and be assured of my ever-remaining, your dutiful son. In all our miseries, cried I, what thanks have we not to return that one at least of our family is exempted from what we suffer? Heaven be his guard, and keep my boy thus happy to be the supporter of his widowed mother, and the father of these two babes, which is all the patrimony I can now bequeath him. May he keep their innocence from the temptations of want, and be their conductor in the paths of honour. I had scarce said these words when a noise like that of a tumult seemed to proceed from the prison below. It died away soon after, and a clanking of fetters was heard along the passage that led to my apartment. The keeper of the prison entered, holding a man all bloody, wounded and fettered with the heaviest irons. I looked with compassion on the wretch as he approached me, but with horror when I found it was my own son, my George, my George, and do I find thee thus, wounded, fettered? Is this thy happiness? Is this the manner you return to me? Oh, that this sight could break my heart at once, and let me die! Where, sir, is your fortitude? returned my son with an intrepid voice. I must suffer. My life is forfeited, and let them take it. I tried to restrain my passions for a few minutes in silence, but I thought I should have died with the effort. Oh, my boy, my heart weeps to behold thee thus, and I cannot, cannot help it. In the moment that I thought thee blessed, and prayed for thy safety, to behold thee thus again, chained, wounded, and yet the death of the youthful is happy. But I am old, a very old man, and have lived to see this day, to see my children all untimely falling about me, while I continue a wretched survivor in the midst of ruin. May all the curses that ever sunk a soul fall heavy upon the murderer of my children. May he live, like me, to see— Hold, sir, replied my son, or I shall blush for thee. How, sir, forgetful of your age, your holy calling, thus to arrogate the justice of heaven, and fling those curses upward that must soon descend to crush thy own grey head with destruction? No, sir, let it be your care now to fit me for that vile death I must shortly suffer, to arm me with hope and resolution, to give me courage to drink of that bitterness which must shortly be my portion. My child, you must not die. I am sure no offence of thine can deserve so vile a punishment. My George could never be guilty of any crime to make his ancestors ashamed of him. Mine, sir, returned my son, is, I fear, an unpardonable one. When I received my mother's letter from home, I immediately came down, determined to punish the betrayer of our honour, and sent him an order to meet me, which he answered, not in person, but by his dispatching four of his domestics to seize me. I wounded one who first assaulted me, and I fear desperately, but the rest made me their prisoner. The coward is determined to put the law in execution against me. The proofs are undeniable. I have sent a challenge, and as I am the first transgressor upon the statute, I see no hopes of pardon. But you have often charmed me with your lessons of fortitude. Let me now, sir, find them in your example." And, my son, you shall find them. I am now raised above this world and all the pleasures it can produce. From this moment I break from my heart all the ties that held it down to earth, and will prepare to fit us both for eternity. Yes, my son, I will point out the way, and my soul shall guide yours in the ascent, for we will take our flight together. 
I now see and am convinced you can expect no pardon here, and I can only exhort you to seek it at that greatest tribunal, where we both shall shortly answer. But let us not be niggardly in our exhortation, but let all our fellow prisoners have a share. Good jailer, let them be permitted to stand here while I attempt to improve them. Thus saying, I made an effort to rise from my straw, but wanted strength, and was able only to recline against the wall. The prisoners assembled according to my direction, for they loved to hear my counsel. My son and his mother supported me on either side. I looked and saw that none were wanting, and then addressed them with the following exhortation. End of chapter The Vicar of Wakefield by Oliver Goldsmith Read for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton Chapter 29 The Equal Dealings of Providence Demonstrated with Regard to the Happy and the Miserable Here Below That from the nature of pleasure and pain the wretched must be repaid the balance of their sufferings in the life hereafter. My friends, my children and fellow sufferers, when I reflect on the distribution of good and evil here below, I find that much has been given man to enjoy, yet still more to suffer. Though we should examine the whole world, we shall not find one man so happy as to have nothing left to wish for. But we daily see thousands who, by suicide, show us they have nothing left to hope. In this life, then, it appears that we cannot be entirely blessed, yet we may be completely miserable. Why man should thus feel pain, why our wretchedness should be requisite in the formation of universal felicity, why, when all other systems are made perfect by the perfection of their subordinate parts, the great system should require for its perfection parts that are not only subordinate to others, but imperfect in themselves? These are questions that never can be explained, and might be useless if known. On this subject, Providence has thought fit to elude our curiosity, satisfied with granting us motives to consolation. In this situation, man has called in the friendly assistance of philosophy, and heaven, seeing the incapacity of that to console him, has given him the aid of religion. The consolations of philosophy are very amusing, but often fallacious. It tells us that life is filled with comforts if we will but enjoy them, and, on the other hand, that though we unavoidably have miseries here, life is short and they will soon be over. Thus do these consolations destroy each other, for if life is a place of comfort, its shortness must be misery, and if it be long, our griefs are protracted. Thus philosophy is weak. But religion comforts in a higher strain. Man is here, it tells us, fitting up his mind and preparing it for another abode. When the good man leaves the body and is all a glorious mind, he will find he has been making himself a heaven of happiness here, while the wretch that has been maimed and contaminated by his vices shrinks from his body with terror and finds that he has anticipated the vengeance of heaven. To religion, then, we must hold, in every circumstance of our life, for our truest comfort. For if already we are happy, it is a pleasure to think that we can make that happiness unending. And if we are miserable, it is very consoling to think that there is a place of rest. 
Thus, to the fortunate, religion holds out a continuance of bliss, to the wretched a change from pain. But though religion is very kind to all men, it has promised peculiar rewards to the unhappy. The sick, the naked, the houseless, the heavy-laden, and the prisoner have ever most frequent promises in our sacred law. The author of our religion everywhere professes himself the wretch's friend, and, unlike the false ones of this world, bestows all his caresses upon the forlorn. The unthinking have censured this as partiality, as a preference without merit to deserve it, but they never reflect that it is not in the power even of heaven itself to make the offer of unceasing felicity as great a gift to the happy as to the miserable. To the first, eternity is but a single blessing, since at most it but increases what they already possess. To the latter, it is a double advantage, for it diminishes their pain here, and rewards them with heavenly bliss hereafter. But providence is in another respect kinder to the poor than the rich, for as it thus makes the life after death more desirable, so it smooths the passage there. The wretched have had a long familiarity with every face of terror. The man of sorrow lays himself quietly down, without possessions to regret, and but few ties to stop his departure. He feels only nature's pang in the final separation, and this is no way greater than he has often fainted under before, for after a certain degree of pain every new breach that death opens in the constitution nature kindly covers with insensibility. Thus providence has given the wretched two advantages over the happy, in this life greater felicity in dying, and in heaven all that superiority of pleasure which arises from contrasted enjoyment. And this superiority, my friends, is no small advantage, and seems to be one of the pleasures of the poor man in the parable. For though he was already in heaven, and felt all the raptures it could give, yet it was mentioned as an addition to his happiness that he had once been wretched and now was comforted, that he had known what it was to be miserable, and now felt what it was to be happy. Thus, my friends, you see, religion does what philosophy could never do. It shows the equal dealings of heaven to the happy and the unhappy, and levels all human enjoyments to nearly the same standard. It gives to both rich and poor the same happiness hereafter, and equally hopes to aspire after it. But if the rich have the advantage of enjoying pleasure here, the poor have the endless satisfaction of knowing what it was once to be miserable, when crowned with endless felicity hereafter. And even though this should be called a small advantage, yet being an eternal one, it must make up by duration what the temporal happiness of the great may have exceeded by intenseness. These are therefore the consolations which the wretched have peculiar to themselves, and in which they are above the rest of mankind. In other respects they are below them. They who would know the miseries of the poor must see life and endure it. To declaim on the temporal advantages they enjoy is only repeating what none either believe or practice. The men who have the necessaries of living are not poor, and they who want them must be miserable. Yes, my friends, we must be miserable. No vain efforts of a refined imagination can soothe the wants of nature, can give elastic sweetness to the dank vapour of a dungeon, or ease to the throbbings of a broken heart. 
Let the philosopher on his couch of softness tell us that we can resist all these. Alas, the effort by which we resist them is still the greatest pain. Death is slight, and any man may sustain it. But torments are dreadful, and these no man can endure. To us, then, my friends, the promises of happiness in heaven should be peculiarly dear. For if our rewards be in this life alone, we are then indeed of all men the most miserable. When I look round these gloomy walls made to terrify, as well as to confine us, this light that only serves to show the horrors of the place, those shackles that tyranny has imposed, or crime made necessary, when I survey these emaciated looks and hear those groans, oh, my friends, what a glorious exchange would heaven be for these! To fly through regions unconfined as air, to bask in the sunshine of eternal bliss, to carol over endless hymns of praise, to have no master to threaten or insult us, but the form of goodness himself forever in our eyes, when I think of these things, death becomes the messenger of very glad tidings. When I think of these things, his sharpest arrow becomes the staff of my support. When I think of these things, what is there in life worth having? When I think of these things, what is there that should not be spurned away? Kings in their palaces should groan for such advantages, but we, humbled as we are, should yearn for them. And shall not these things be ours? Ours they will certainly be, if we but try for them. And what is comfort? We are shut out from many temptations that would retard our pursuit. Only let us try for them, and they will certainly be ours, and what is still a comfort shortly too. For if we look back on past life, it appears but a very short span, and whatever we may think of the rest of life, it will yet be found of less duration. As we grow older, the days seem to grow shorter, and our intimacy with time ever lessens the perception of his stay. Then let us take comfort now, for we shall soon be at our journey's end. We shall soon lay down the heavy burden laid by heaven upon us, and, through death, the only friend of the wretched, for a little while mocks the weary traveller with the view, and, like his horizon, still flies before him. Yet the time will certainly and shortly come when we shall cease from our toil, when the luxurious great ones of the world shall no more tread us to the earth, when we shall think with pleasure on our sufferings below when we shall be surrounded with all our friends, or such as deserved our friendship, when our bliss shall be unutterable, and still, to crown all, unending. End of chapter The Vicar of Wakefield by Oliver Goldsmith Read for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton Chapter 30 Happier prospects begin to appear, let us be inflexible, and fortune will at last change in our favour. When I had thus finished, and my audience was retired, the jailer, who was one of the most humane of his profession, hoped I would not be displeased, as what he did was but his duty, observing that he must be obliged to remove my son into a stronger cell, but that he should be permitted to revisit me every morning. I thanked him for his clemency, and, grasping my boy's hand, bade him farewell, and be mindful of the great duty that was before him. I again therefore laid me down, and one of my little ones sat by my bedside reading, when Mr. Jenkins entering informed me that there was news of my daughter, for that she was seen by a person about two hours before in a strange gentleman's company, 
and that they had stopped at a neighbouring village for refreshment, and seemed as if returning to town. He had scarce delivered this news, when the jailer came with looks of haste and pleasure to inform me that my daughter was found. Moses came running in a moment after, crying out that his sister Sophie was below, and coming up with our old friend Mr. Birchill. Just as he delivered this news, my dearest girl entered, and with looks almost wild with pleasure, ran to kiss me in a transport of affection. Her mother's tears and silence also showed her pleasure. "'Here, papa,' cried the charming girl, "'here is the brave man to whom I owe my delivery. To this gentleman's intrepidity I am indebted for my happiness and safety.' A kiss from Mr. Birchill, whose pleasure seemed even greater than hers, interrupted what she was going to add. "'Ah, Mr. Birchill,' cried I, "'this is but a wretched habitation you now find us in, and we are now very different from what you last saw us. You were ever our friend. We have long discovered our errors with regard to you, and repented of our ingratitude. After the vile usage you then received at my hands, I am almost ashamed to behold your face. Yet I hope you'll forgive me, as I was deceived by a base, ungenerous wretch, who, under the mask of friendship, has undone me.' "'It is impossible,' replied Mr. Birchill, "'that I should forgive you, as you never deserved my resentment. I partly saw your delusion then, and as it was out of my power to restrain, I could only pity it.' "'It was ever my conjecture,' cried I, "'that your mind was noble, but now I find it so. But tell me, my dear child, how hast thou been relieved, or who the ruffians were who carried thee away?' "'Indeed, sir,' replied she, "'as to the villain who carried me off, I am yet ignorant, for as my mamma and I were walking out, he came behind us, and almost before I could call for help, forced me into the post-chase, and in an instant the horses drove away. I met several on the road to whom I cried out for assistance, but they disregarded my entreaties. In the meantime the ruffian himself used every art to hinder me from crying out.' He flattered and threatened by turns, and swore that if I continued but silent he intended me no harm. In the meantime I had broken the canvas that he had drawn up, and whom should I perceive at some distance but your old friend Mr. Birchill, walking along with his usual swiftness with the great stick for which we used so much to ridicule him. As soon as we came within hearing, I called out to him by name and entreated his help. I repeated my exclamation several times, upon which, with a very loud voice, he bid the postillion stop. But the boy took no notice, but drove on with still greater speed. I now thought he could never overtake us, when, in less than a minute, I saw Mr. Birchill come running up by the side of the horses, and with one blow knock the postillion to the ground. The horses, when he was fallen, soon stopped of themselves, and the ruffian stepping out with oaths and menaces, drew his sword, and ordered him at his peril to retire. But Mr. Birchill, running up, shivered his sword to pieces, and then pursued him for near a quarter of a mile, but he made his escape. I was at this time come out myself, willing to assist my deliverer, but he soon returned to me in triumph. The postillion, who was recovered, was going to make his escape too, but Mr. Birchill ordered him at his peril to mount again and drive back to town. Finding it impossible to resist, he reluctantly complied, though the wound he had received seemed to me at least to be dangerous. He continued to complain of the pain as we drove along, so that he at last excited Mr. Birchill's compassion, who, at my request, exchanged him for another at an inn where we called on our return. 
"'Welcome, then,' cried I, "'my child, and thou her gallant deliverer, a thousand welcomes. "'Though our cheer is but wretched, yet our hearts are ready to receive you. "'And now, Mr. Birchill, as you have delivered my girl, "'if you think her a recompense, she is yours. "'If you can stoop to an alliance with a family so poor as mine, "'take her, obtain her consent, as I know you have her heart, and you have mine. "'And let me tell you, sir, that I give you no small treasure.' She has been celebrated for beauty, it is true, but that is not my meaning. I give you up a treasure in her mind. But I suppose, sir, cried Mr. Birchill, that you are apprised of my circumstances, and of my incapacity to support her as she deserves. If your present objection, replied I, be meant as an evasion of my offer, I desist. But I know no man so worthy to deserve her as you. And if I could give her thousands, and thousands sought her from me, yet my honest brave Birchill should be my dearest choice. To all this his silence alone seemed to give a mortifying refusal, and without the least reply to my offer, he demanded if we could not be furnished with refreshments from the next inn, to which, being answered in the affirmative, he ordered them to send in the best dinner that could be provided upon such short notice. He bespoke also a dozen of their best wine, and some cordials for me, adding with a smile that he would stretch a little for once, and though in a prison asserted he was never better disposed to be merry. The waiter soon made his appearance with preparations for dinner. A table was lent us by the jailer, who seemed remarkably assiduous. The wine was disposed in order, and two very well-dressed dishes were brought in. My daughter had not yet heard of her poor brother's melancholy situation, and we all seemed unwilling to damp her cheerfulness by the relation, but it was in vain that I attempted to appear cheerful, the circumstances of my unfortunate son broke through all efforts to dissemble, so that I was at last obliged to damp our mirth by relating his misfortunes, and wishing that he might be permitted to share with us in this little interval of satisfaction. After my guests were recovered from the consternation my account had produced, I requested also that Mr. Jenkinson, a fellow prisoner, might be admitted, and the jailer granted my request with an air of unusual submission. The clanking of my son's irons was no sooner heard along the passage than his sister ran impatiently to meet him, while Mr. Birchill, in the meantime, asked me if my son's name was George, to which, replying in the affirmative, he still continued silent. As soon as my boy entered the room, I could perceive he regarded Mr. Birchill with a look of astonishment and reverence. "'Come on,' cried I, my son, though we are fallen very low, yet Providence has been pleased to grant us some small relaxation from pain. Thy sister is restored to us, and there is her deliverer. To that brave man it is that I am indebted for yet having a daughter. Give him, my boy, the hand of friendship. He deserves our warmest gratitude.' My son seemed all this while regardless of what I said, and still continued fixed at respectful distance. "'My dear brother,' cried his sister, "'why don't you thank my good deliverer? The brave should ever love each other.' He still continued his silence and astonishment, till our guest at last perceived himself to be known, and, assuming all his native dignity, desired my son to come forward. Never before had I seen anything so truly majestic as the air he assumed upon this occasion. The greatest object in the universe, says a certain philosopher, is a good man struggling with adversity. Yet there is still a greater, which is a good man that comes to relieve it. 
after he had regarded my son for some time with a superior air i again find said he unthinking boy that the same crime but here he was interrupted by one of the jailer's servants who came to inform us that a person of distinction who had driven into town with a chariot and several attendants sent his respects to the gentleman that was with us and begged to know when he should think proper to be waited upon bid the fellow wait cried our guest till i shall have leisure to receive him and then turning to my son i again find sir proceeded he that you are guilty of the same offence for which you once had my reproof and for which the law is now preparing its justice punishments you imagine perhaps that a contempt for your own life gives you a right to take that of another but where sir is the difference between a duellist who hazards a life of no value and the murderer who acts with greater security is it any diminution of the gamester's fraud when he alleges that he has staked a counter alas sir cried i whoever you are pity the poor misguided creature for what he has done was in obedience to a deluded mother who in the bitterness of her resentment required him upon her blessing to avenge her quarrel here sir is the letter which will serve to convince you of her imprudence and diminish his guilt he took the letter and hastily read it over this says he though not a perfect excuse is such a palliation of his fault as induces me to forgive him and now sir continued he kindly taking my son by the hand i see you are surprised at finding me here but i have often visited prisons upon occasions less interesting i am now come to see justice done a worthy man for whom i have the most sincere esteem i have long been a disguised spectator of thy father's benevolence i have at his little dwelling enjoyed respect uncontaminated by flattery and have received that happiness that courts could not give from the amusing simplicity round his fireside my nephew has been apprised of my intentions of coming here and i find is arrived it would be wronging him and you to condemn him without examination if there be injury there shall be redress and this i may say without boasting that none have ever taxed the injustice of sir william thornhill we now found the personage whom we had so long entertained as an harmless amusing companion was no other than the celebrated sir william thornhill to whose virtues and singularities scarce any were strangers the poor mr bircher was in reality a man of large fortune and great interest to whom senates listened with applause and whom party heard with conviction who was the friend of this country but loyal to his king my poor wife recollecting her former familiarity seemed to shrink with apprehension but sophia who a few moments before thought him her own now perceiving the immense distance to which he was removed by fortune was unable to conceal her tears ah sir cried my wife with a piteous aspect how is it possible that i can ever have your forgiveness the slights you received from me the last time i had the honour of seeing you at our house and the jokes which i audaciously threw out these jokes sir i fear can never be forgiven my dear good lady returned he with a smile if you had your joke i had my answer i'll leave it to all the company if mine were not as good as yours to say the truth i know nobody whom i am disposed to be angry with at the present but the fellow who so frighted my little girl here i had not even time to examine the rascal's person so as to describe him in an advertisement can you tell me sophia my dear whether you should know him again indeed sir replied she i can't be positive yet now i recollect he had a large mark over one of his eyebrows 
I ask pardon, madam, interrupted Jenkinson, who was by, but be so good as to inform me if the fellow wore his own red hair. Yes, I think so, cried Sophia, and did your honour, continued he, turning to Sir William, observe the length of his legs. I can't be sure of their length, cried the baronet, but I am convinced of their swiftness, for he outran me, which is what I thought few men in the kingdom could have done. Please, your honour, cried Jenkinson, I know the man. It is certainly the same. The best runner in England. He's beaten Pinwire of Newcastle. Timothy Baxter is his name. I know him perfectly, and the very place of his retreat at this moment. If your honour will bid Mr. Jailer let two of his men go with me, I'll engage to produce him to you in an hour at farthest. Upon this the jailer was called, who, instantly appearing, Sir William demanded if he knew him. Yes, please, your honour, replied the jailer, I know Sir William Thornhill well, and everybody that knows anything of him will desire to know more of him. Well then, said the baronet, my request is that you will permit this man and two of your servants to go upon a message by my authority. And as I am in commission of the peace, I undertake to secure you. Your promise is sufficient, replied the other, and you may, at a minute's warning, send them over England whenever your honour thinks fit. In pursuance of the jailer's compliance, Jenkinson was dispatched in search of Timothy Baxter, while we were amused with the assiduity of our youngest boy, Bill, who had just come in and climbed up to Sir William's neck in order to kiss him. His mother was immediately going to chastise his familiarity, but the worthy man prevented her, and taking the child, all ragged as he was, upon his knee, "'What, Bill, you chubby rogue!' cried he. "'Do you remember your old friend Birchill? And Dick, too, my honest veteran!' Are you here? You shall find I have not forgot you. So saying, he gave each a large piece of gingerbread, which the poor fellows eat very heartily, as they had got that morning but a very scanty breakfast. We now sat down to dinner, which was almost cold, but previously, my arm still continuing painful, Sir William wrote a prescription, for he had made a study of physic his amusement, and was more than moderately skilled in the profession. This being sent to an apothecary who lived in the place, my arm was dressed, and I found almost instantaneous relief. We were waited upon at dinner by the jailer himself, who was willing to do our guest all the honour in his power. But before we had well dined, another message was brought from his nephew, desiring permission to appear, in order to vindicate his innocence and honour, with which request the baronet complied, and desired Mr. Thornhill to be introduced. End of chapter The Vicar of Wakefield by Oliver Goldsmith, read for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton. Chapter thirty one Former Benevolence Now Repaid with Unexpected Interest. Mr. Thornhill made his entrance with a smile, which he seldom wanted, and was going to embrace his uncle, which the other repulsed with an air of disdain. No fawning, sir, at present, cried the baronet with a look of severity. The only way to my heart is by the road of honour, but here I only see complicated instances of falsehood, cowardice, and oppression. How is it, sir, that this poor man, for whom I know you professed a friendship, is used thus hardly? His daughter vilely seduced as a recompense for his hospitality, and he himself thrown into a prison, perhaps but for resenting the insult. His son, too, whom you feared to face as a man— "'Is it possible, sir,' interrupted his nephew, "'that my uncle could object that as a crime "'which his repeated instructions alone "'have persuaded me to avoid?' 
"'Your rebuke,' cried Sir William, "'is just. You have acted in this instance prudently and well, though not quite as your father would have done. My brother, indeed, was the soul of honour, but thou, yes, you have acted in this instance perfectly right, and it has my warmest approbation.' "'And I hope,' said his nephew, "'that the rest of my conduct will not be found to deserve censure. "'I appeared, sir, with this gentleman's daughter "'at some places of public amusement. "'Thus what was levity, scandal, called by a harsher name, "'and it was reported that I had debauched her. "'I waited on her father in person, "'willing to clear the thing to his satisfaction, "'and he received me only with insult and abuse.' As for the rest, with regards to his being here, my attorney and steward can best inform you, as I commit the management of business entirely to them. If he has contracted debts, and is unwilling or even unable to pay them, it is their business to proceed in this manner, and I see no hardship or injustice in pursuing the most legal means of redress. If this, cried Sir William, be as you have stated it, there is nothing unpardonable in your offence, and though your conduct might have been more generous in not suffering this gentleman to be oppressed by subordinate tyranny, yet it has been at least equitable. He cannot contradict a single particular, replied the squire. I defy him to do so, and several of my servants are ready to attest what I say. Thus, sir, continued he, finding that I was silent, for in fact I could not contradict him, Thus, sir, my own innocence is vindicated. But though at your entreaty I am ready to forgive this gentleman every other offence, yet his attempts to lessen me in your esteem excite a resentment that I cannot govern, and this too at a time when his son was actually preparing to take away my life. This, I say, was such guilt that I am determined to let the law take its course. I have here the challenge that was sent me, and two witnesses to prove it. One of my servants has been wounded dangerously, and even though my uncle himself should dissuade me, which I know he will not, yet I will see public justice done, and he shall suffer for it. Thou monster, cried my wife, hast thou not had vengeance enough already, but must my poor boy feel thy cruelty? I hope that good Sir William will protect us, for my son is as innocent as a child. I'm sure he is, and never did harm to man. Madam, replied the good man, your wishes for his safety are not greater than mine. But I am sorry to find his guilt too plain, and if my nephew persists. But the appearance of Jenkinson and the jailer's two servants now called off our attention, who entered, hauling in a tall man, very genteelly dressed, and answering the description already given of the ruffian who had carried off my daughter. "'Here,' cried Jenkinson, pulling him in, "'here we have him, and if ever there was a candidate for Tyburn, this is the one.' The moment Mr. Thornhill perceived the prisoner, and Jenkinson, who had him in custody, he seemed to shrink back with terror. His face became pale with conscious guilt, and he would have withdrawn, but Jenkinson, who perceived his design, stopped him. "'What, squire?' cried he. "'Are you ashamed of your two old acquaintances, Jenkinson and Baxter? "'But this is the way that all great men forget their friends, "'though I am resolved we will not forget you.' "'Our prisoner, please, Your Honour, continued he, turning to Sir William, "'has already confessed all. "'This is the gentleman reported to be so dangerously wounded. "'He declares that it was Mr. Thornhill who first put him upon this affair, 
that he gave him the clothes he now wears to appear like a gentleman, and furnished him with the post-chase. The plan was laid between them that he should carry off the young lady to a place of safety, and that there he should threaten and terrify her. But Mr. Thornhill was to come in in the meantime, as if by accident, to her rescue, and that they should fight a while, and then he was to run off, by which Mr. Thornhill would have the better opportunity of gaining her affections himself under the character of her defender. Sir William remembered the coat to have been frequently worn by his nephew, and all the rest the prisoner himself confirmed by a more circumstantial account, concluding that Mr. Thornhill had often declared to him that he was in love with both sisters at the same time. "'Heavens!' cried Sir William. "'What a viper have I been fostering in my bosom, and so fond of public justice too as he seemed to be!' but he shall have it. Secure him, Mr. Jailer. Yet, hold, I fear there is not legal evidence to detain him. Upon this, Mr. Thornhill, with the utmost humility, entreated that two such abandoned wretches might not be admitted as evidences against him, but his servants should be examined. Your servants, replied Sir William, wretch, call them yours no longer, but come, let us hear what those fellows have to say. Let his butler be called." When the butler was introduced, he soon perceived by his former master's looks that all his power was now over. "'Tell me,' cried Sir William sternly, "'have you ever seen your master and that fellow dressed up in his clothes in company together?' "'Yes, please, Your Honour,' cried the butler, a thousand times. "'He was the man that always brought him his ladies.' "'How?' interrupted Mr. Thornhill. "'This to my face?' "'Yes,' replied the butler, "'or to any man's face. "'To tell you a truth, Master Thornhill,' I never either loved you or liked you, and I don't care if I tell you now a piece of my mind. Now then, cried Jenkinson, tell his honour whether you know anything of me. I can't say, replied the butler, that I know much good of you. The night that gentleman's daughter was deluded to our house, you were one of them. So then, cried Sir William, I find you have brought a very fine witness to prove your innocence, thou stain to humanity to associate with such wretches. But, continuing his examination, you tell me, Mr. Butler, that this was the person who brought him this old gentleman's daughter? No, please, Your Honour, replied the butler, he did not bring her, for the squire himself undertook that business. But he brought the priest that pretended to marry them. It is but too true, cried Jenkinson, I cannot deny it. That was the employment assigned me, and I confess it to my confusion. "'Good heavens!' exclaimed the baronet. "'How every new discovery of his villainy alarms me. "'All his guilt is now too plain, "'and I find his present prosecution "'was dictated by tyranny, cowardice, and revenge. "'At my request, Mr. Jailer, "'set this young officer, now your prisoner, free, "'and trust me for the consequences. "'I'll make it my business to set the affair in a proper light "'to my friend the magistrate who has committed him. "'But where is the unfortunate young lady herself? "'Let her appear to confront this wretch.' I long to know by what arts he seduced her, entreat her to come in. Where is she? Ah, sir, said I, that question stings me to the heart. I was once indeed happy in a daughter, but her miseries— Another interruption here prevented me, for who should make her appearance but Miss Arambella Wilmot, who was next day to have been married to Mr. Thornhill. Nothing could equal her surprise at seeing Sir William and his nephew here before her for her arrival was quite accidental. It happened that she and the old gentleman her father were passing through the town on their way to her aunt's, 
who had insisted that her nuptials with Mr. Thornhill should be consummated at her house, but, stopping for refreshment, they put up at an inn at the other end of the town. It was there, from the window, that the young lady happened to observe one of my little boys playing in the street, and, instantly sending a footman to bring the child to her, she learnt from him some account of our misfortunes, but was still kept ignorant of young Mr. Thornhill's being the cause. Though her father made several remonstrances on the impropriety of going to a prison to visit us, yet they were ineffectual. She desired the child to conduct her, which he did, and it was thus she surprised us at a juncture so unexpected. Nor can I go on without a reflection on those accidental meetings, which, though they happen every day, seldom excite our surprise, but upon some extraordinary occasion. To what a fortuitous concurrence do we not owe every pleasure and convenience of our lives? How many seeming accidents must unite before we can be clothed or fed? The peasant must be disposed to labour, the shower must fall, the wind fill the merchant's sail, or numbers must want the usual supply. We all continued silent for some moments, while my charming pupil, which was the name I generally gave this young lady, united in her looks compassion and astonishment, which gave new finishings to her beauty. Indeed, my dear Mr. Thornhill, cried she to the squire, who she supposed was come here to succour and not to oppress us, I take it a little unkindly that you should come here without me, or never inform me of the situation of a family so dear to us both. You know I should take as much pleasure in contributing to the relief of my reverend old master here, whom I shall ever esteem, as you can. But I find that, like your uncle, you take a pleasure in doing good in secret. He find pleasure in doing good, cried Sir William, interrupting her. No, my dear, his pleasures are as base as he is. You see in him, madam, as complete a villain as ever disgraced humanity, a wretch, who, after having deluded this poor man's daughter, after plotting against the innocence of her sister, has thrown the father into prison, and the eldest son into fetters, because he had courage to face his betrayer. And give me leave, madam, now to congratulate you upon an escape from the embraces of such a monster. Oh, goodness! cried the lovely girl. How have I been deceived? Mr. Thornhill informed me for certain that this gentleman's eldest son, Captain Primrose, was gone off to America with his new married lady. My sweet miss, cried my wife, he has told you nothing but falsehoods. My son George never left the kingdom, nor was married. Though you have forsaken him, he has always loved you too well to think of anybody else. And I have heard him say he would die a bachelor for your sake. She then proceeded to expatiate upon the sincerity of her son's passion. She set his duel with Mr. Thornhill in a proper light. From thence she made a rapid digression to the squire's debaucheries, his pretended marriages, and ended with a most insulting picture of his cowardice. "'Good heavens!' cried Miss Wilmot. "'How very near have I been to the brink of ruin! "'But how great is my pleasure to have escaped it! Ten thousand falsehoods has this gentleman told me. "'He had at last art enough to persuade me "'that my promise to the only man I esteemed "'was no longer binding, since he had been unfaithful. "'By his falsehoods I was taught to detest "'one equally brave and generous. "'But by this time my son was freed from the encumbrances of justice, "'as the person supposed to be wounded was detected to be an impostor. 
Mr. Jenkinson also, who had acted as his valet de chambre, had dressed up his hair, and furnished him with whatever was necessary to make a genteel appearance. He now therefore entered, handsomely dressed in his regimentals, and, without vanity, for I am above it, he appeared as handsome a fellow as ever wore a military dress. As he entered, he made Miss Wilmot a modest and distant bow, for he was not as yet acquainted with the change which the eloquence of his mother had wrought in his favour. But no decorums could restrain the impatience of his blushing mistress to be forgiven. Her tears, her looks, all contributed to discover the real sensations of her heart, for having forgotten her former promise, and having suffered herself to be deluded by an impostor. My son appeared amazed at her condescension, and could scarcely believe it real. "'Sure, madam,' cried he, "'this is but delusion. I can never have merited this. To be blessed thus is to be too happy.' "'No, sir,' replied she, "'I have been deceived, basely deceived, else nothing could have ever made me unjust to my promise. You know my friendship, you have long known it, but forget what I have done.' and as you once had my warmest vows of constancy, you shall now have them repeated, and be assured that if your Arabella cannot be yours, she shall never be another's. "'And no others you shall be,' cried Sir William, "'if I have any influence with your father.' This hint was sufficient for my son Moses, who immediately flew to the inn where the old gentleman was, to inform him of every circumstance that had happened. But, in the meantime, the squire, perceiving that he was on every side undone, now finding that no hopes were left from flattery or dissimulation, concluded that his wisest way would be to turn and face his pursuers. Thus, laying aside all shame, he appeared the open hardy villain. "'I find, then,' cried he, "'that I am to expect no justice here, but I am resolved it shall be done me. You shall know, sir,' turning to Sir William, I am no longer a poor dependent upon your favours. I scorn them. Nothing can keep Miss Wilmot's fortune from me, which, I thank her father's assiduity, is pretty large. The articles and a bond for her fortune are signed and safe in my possession. It was her fortune, not her person, that induced me to wish for this match. And, possessed of the one, let who will take the other." this was an alarming blow, Sir William was sensible of the justice of his claims, for he had been instrumental in drawing up the marriage articles himself. Miss Wilmot, therefore, perceiving that her fortune was irretrievably lost, turning to my son, she asked if the loss of fortune could lessen her value to him. Though fortune, said she, is out of my power, at least I have my hand to give. And that, madam, cried her real lover, was indeed all that you ever had to give, at least all that I ever thought worth the acceptance. And now I protest, my Arabella, by all that's happy, your want of fortune this moment increases my pleasure, as it serves to convince my sweet girl of my sincerity. Mr. Wilmot now entering, he seemed not a little pleased at the danger his daughter had just escaped, and readily consented to a dissolution of the match. But, finding that her fortune, which was secured to Mr. Thornhill by bond, would not be given up, nothing could exceed his disappointment. He now saw that his money must all go to enrich one who had no fortune of his own. He could bear his being a rascal, but to want an equivalent to his daughter's fortune was wormwood. He sat there for some minutes, employed in the most mortifying speculations, 
till Sir William attempted to lessen his anxiety. "'I must confess, sir,' cried he, "'that your present disappointment does not entirely displease me. Your immoderate passion for wealth is now justly punished. But though the young lady cannot be rich, she has still a competence sufficient to give content.' Here you see an honest young soldier who is willing to take her without fortune. They have long loved each other, and, for the friendship I bear his father, my interest shall not be wanting in his promotion. Leave, then, that ambition which disappoints you, and for once admit that happiness which courts your acceptance. Sir William, replied the old gentleman, be assured I never yet forced her inclinations, nor will I now. If she still continues to love this young gentleman, let her have him with all my heart. There is still, thank heaven, some fortune left, and your promise will make it something more. Only let my old friend here, meaning me, give me a promise of settling six thousand pounds upon my girl, if ever he should come to his fortune, and I am ready this night to be the first to join them together. As it now remained with me to make the young couple happy, I readily gave a promise of making the settlement he required, which, to one who had such little expectations as I, was no great favour. We had now, therefore, the satisfaction of seeing them fly into each other's arms in a transport. "'After all my misfortunes,' cried my son George, "'to be thus rewarded, sure this is more than I could ever have presumed to hope for.' to be possessed of all that's good, and after such an interval of pain. My warmest wishes could never rise so high. Yes, my George, returned his lovely bride, now let the wretch take my fortune, since you are happy without it, so am I. Oh, what an exchange have I made for the basest of men to the dearest best! Let him enjoy our fortune. I now can be happy even in indigence." And I promise you, cried the squire with a malicious grin, that I shall be very happy with what you despise. Hold, hold, sir, cried Jenkinson. There are two words to that bargain. As for the lady's fortune, sir, you shall never touch a single stiver of it. Pray, your honour, continued he to Sir William, can the squire have this lady's fortune if he be married to another? How can you make such a simple demand, replied the baronet, undoubtedly he cannot. I am sorry for that, cried Jenkinson, for as this gentleman and I have been old fellow-spotters, I have a friendship for him. But I must declare, well as I love him, that his contract is not worth a tobacco-stopper, for he is married already. You lie like a rascal, returned the squire, who seemed roused by this insult. I never was legally married to any woman. Indeed, begging your honour's pardon, replied the other, you were— and I hope you'll show a proper return of friendship to your own honest Jenkinson, who brings you a wife, and if the company restrains their curiosity a few minutes, they shall see her. So saying, he went off with his usual celerity, and left us all unable to form any probable conjecture as to his design. Aye, let him go, cried the squire. Whatever else I may have done, I defy him there. I am too old now to be frightened with squibs. I'm surprised, said the baronet, what the fellow can intend by this, some low piece of humour, I suppose. Perhaps, sir, replied I, he may have a more serious meaning, for when we reflect on the various schemes this gentleman has laid to seduce innocence, perhaps some one more artful than the rest has been found able to deceive him. 
when we consider what numbers he has ruined, how many parents now feel with anguish the infamy and the contamination which he has brought into their families, it would not surprise me if some one of them... Amazement! Do I see my lost daughter? Do I hold her? It is. It is my life, my happiness. I thought thee lost, my Olivia, yet still I hold thee, and still thou shalt live to bless me. The warmest transports of the fondest lover were not greater than mine when I saw him introduce my child and held my daughter in my arms, whose silence only spoke her raptures. And art thou returned to me, my darling, cried I, to be my comfort in age? That she is, cried Jenkinson, and make much of her, for she is your own honourable child, and as honest a woman as any in the whole room. Let the other be who she will. And as for you, squire, as sure as you stand there, this young lady is your lawful wedded wife. And to convince you that I speak nothing but truth, here is the licence by which you were married together. So saying, he put the licence into the baronet's hands, who read it and found it perfect in every respect. And now, gentlemen, continued he, I find you are surprised at all this, but a few words will explain the difficulty. That their squire of renown, for whom I have a great friendship, but that's between ourselves, has often employed me in doing odd little things for him. Among the rest, he commissioned me to procure him a false license and a false priest, in order to deceive this young lady. But as I was very much his friend, what did I do but went and got a true license and a true priest, and married them both as fast as the cloth could make them? Perhaps you'll think it was generosity that made me do all this. But no, to my shame I confess it, my only design was to keep the licence and let the squire know that I could prove it upon him whenever I thought proper, and so make him come down whenever I wanted money. A burst of pleasure now seemed to fill the whole apartment. Our joy reached even to the common room, where the prisoners themselves sympathised, and shook their chains in transport and rude harmony. Happiness was expanded upon every face, and even Olivia's cheeks seemed flushed with pleasure. To be thus restored to reputation, to friends, and fortune at once, was a rapture sufficient to stop the progress of decay and restore former health and vivacity. But perhaps among all there was not one who felt sincerer pleasure than I. Still holding the dear-loved child in my arms, I asked my heart if these transports were not delusion. "'How could you?' cried I, turning to Mr. Jenkinson. "'How could you add to my miseries by the story of her death?' "'But it matters not. My pleasure at finding her again is more than a recompense for the pain.' "'As to your question,' replied Jenkinson, "'that is easily answered. I thought the only probable means of freeing you from prison was by submitting to the squire and consenting to his marriage with the other young lady. But these you had vowed never to grant while your daughter was living.' There was therefore no other method to bring these things to bear but by persuading you that she was dead. I prevailed on your wife to join in the deceit, and we have not had a fit opportunity of undeceiving you till now. In the whole assembly now there only appeared two faces that did not glow with transport. Mr. Thornhill's assurance had entirely forsaken him. He now saw the gulf of infamy and want before him, and trembled to take the plunge. He therefore fell on his knees before his uncle, and in a voice of piercing misery implored compassion. Sir William was going to spurn him away, but at my request he raised him, and after pausing a few moments, 
Thy vices, crimes, and ingratitude, cried he, deserve no tenderness. Yet thou shalt not be entirely forsaken. A bare competence shall be supplied to support the wants of life, but not its follies. This young lady, thy wife, shall be put in possession of a third part of that fortune which was once thine. And from her tenderness alone thou art to expect any extraordinary supplies for the future. He was going to express his gratitude for such kindness in a set speech, but the baronet prevented him by bidding him not aggravate his meanness, which was already but too apparent. He ordered him at the same time to be gone, and from all his former domestics to choose one such as he should think proper, which was all that should be granted to attend him. As soon as he left us, Sir William very politely stepped up to his new niece with a smile and wished her joy. His example was followed by Miss Wilmot and her father. My wife, too, kissed her daughter with much affection, as, to use her own expression, she was now made an honest woman of. Sophia and Moses followed in turn, and even our benefactor Jenkinson desired to be admitted to that honour. Our satisfaction seemed scarce capable of increase. Sir William, whose greatest leisure was in doing good, now looked round with a countenance open as the sun, and saw nothing but joy in the looks of all except that of my daughter Sophia, who, for some reasons we could not comprehend, did not seem perfectly satisfied. I think now, cried he with a smile, that all the company except one or two seem perfectly happy. There only remains an act of justice for me to do. You are sensible, sir, continued he, turning to me, of the obligations we both owe Mr. Jenkinson, and it is but just we should both reward him for it. Miss Sophia will, I am sure, make him very happy, and he shall have from me five hundred pounds as her fortune and upon this I am sure they can live very comfortably together. Come, Miss Sophia, what say you to this match of my making? Will you have him? My poor girl seemed almost sinking into her mother's arms at the hideous proposal. Have him, sir, cried she faintly. No, sir, never. What, cried he again, not have Mr. Jenkinson, your benefactor, a handsome young fellow with five hundred pounds and good expectations? I beg, sir, returned she, scarce able to speak, that you'll desist, and not make me so very wretched. Was ever such obstinacy known, cried he again, to refuse a man whom the family has such infinite obligations to, who has preserved your sister, and who has five hundred pounds? What, not have him? No, sir, never, replied she angrily. I'd sooner die first. If that be the case, then, cried he, if you will not have him, I think I must have you myself and, so saying, he caught her to his breast with ardour. "'My loveliest, my most sensible of girls,' cried he, "'how could you ever think your own Birchill could deceive you, or that Sir William Thornhill could ever cease to admire a mistress that loved him for himself alone? I have for some years sought for a woman who, a stranger to my fortune, could think that I had merit as a man. After having tried in vain, even amongst the pert and ugly, how great at last must be my rapture to have made a conquest over such sense and such heavenly beauty. Then, turning to Jenkinson, as I cannot, sir, part with this young lady myself, for she has taken a fancy to the cut of my face, all the recompense I can make is to give you her fortune, and you may call upon my steward to-morrow for five hundred pounds. 
Thus we had all our compliments to repeat, and Lady Thornhill underwent the same round of ceremony that her sister had done before. In the meantime, Sir William's gentleman appeared to tell us that the equipages were ready to carry us to the inn, where everything was prepared for our reception. My wife and I led the van, and left those gloomy mansions of sorrow. The generous baronet ordered forty pounds to be distributed among the prisoners, and Mr. Wilmot, induced by his example, gave half that sum. We were received below by the shouts of the villagers, and I saw and shook by the hand two or three of my honest parishioners, who were among the number. They attended us to our inn, where a sumptuous entertainment was provided, and coarser provisions distributed in great quantities among the populace. After supper, as my spirits were exhausted by the alternation of pleasure and pain which they had sustained during the day, I asked permission to withdraw, and, leaving the company in the midst of their mirth, as soon as I found myself alone, I poured out my heart in gratitude to the giver of joy as well as of sorrow, and then slept undisturbed till morning. End of chapter The Vicar of Wakefield by Oliver Goldsmith Read for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton Chapter 32 The Conclusion the next morning, as soon as I awaked, I found my eldest son sitting by my bedside, who came to increase my joy with another turn of fortune in my favour. First, having released me from the settlement that I had made the day before in his favour, he let me know that my merchant, who had failed in town, was arrested at Antwerp, and there had given up effects to a much greater amount than was due to his creditors. My boy's generosity pleased me almost as much as this unlooked-for good fortune, but I had some doubts whether I ought in justice to accept his offer. While I was pondering upon this, Sir William entered the room to whom I communicated my doubts. His opinion was that, as my son was already possessed of a very affluent fortune by his marriage, I might accept his offer without any hesitation. His business, however, was to inform me that, as he had the night before sent for the licences, and expected them every hour, he hoped that I would not refuse my assistance in making all the company happy that morning. A footman entered while we were speaking, to tell us that the messenger was returned, and, as I was by this time ready, I went down where I found the whole company as merry as affluence and innocence could make them. However, as they were now preparing for a very solemn ceremony, their laughter entirely displeased me. I told them of the grave, becoming, and sublime deportment they should assume upon this mystical occasion, and read them two homilies and a thesis of my own composing, in order to prepare them. Yet they still seemed perfectly refractory and ungovernable. Even as we were going along to church, to which I led the way, all gravity had quite forsaken them, and I was often tempted to turn back in indignation. In church a new dilemma arose, which promised no easy solution. This was which couple should be married first. My son's bride warmly insisted that Lady Thornhill, that was to be, should take the lead. But this the other refused with equal ardour, protesting she would not be guilty of such rudeness for the world. The argument was supported for some time between both with equal obstinacy and good breeding, but as I stood all this time with my book ready, I was at last quite tired of the contest, and, shutting it, I perceive, cried I, that none of you have a mind to be married, 
and I think we had as good go back again. For I suppose there will be no business done here today. This at once reduced them to reason. The baronet and his lady were first married, and then my son and his lovely partner. I had previously that morning given orders that a coach should be sent for my honest neighbour Flanborough and his family, by which means, upon our return to the inn, we had the pleasure of finding the two Miss Flanboroughs alighted before us. Mr. Jenkinson gave his hand to the eldest, and my son Moses led up the other. And I have since found that he has taken a real liking to the girl, and my consent and bounty he shall have whenever he thinks proper to demand them. We were no sooner returned to the inn, but numbers of my parishioners, hearing of my success, came to congratulate me. But among the rest were those who rose to rescue me, and whom I formerly rebuked with such sharpness. I told the story to Sir William, my son-in-law, who went out and reproved them with great severity. But finding them quite disheartened by his harsh reproof, he gave them half a guinea apiece to drink his health and raise their dejected spirits. Soon after this we were called to a very genteel entertainment, which was dressed by Mr. Thornhill's cook. And it may not be improper to observe, with respect to that gentleman, that he now resides in quality of companion at a relation's house, being very well liked, and seldom sitting at the side table, except when there is no room at the other. For they make no stranger of him. His time is pretty much taken up in keeping his relation, who is a little melancholy, in spirits, and in learning to blow the French horn. My eldest daughter, however, still remembers him with regret, and she has even told me, though I make a great secret of it, that when he reforms she may be brought to relent. But to return, for I am not apt to digress thus, when we were to sit down to dinner our ceremonies were going to be renewed. The question was whether my eldest daughter, as being a matron, should not sit above the two young brides, but the debate was cut short by my son George, who proposed that the company should sit indiscriminately, every gentleman by his lady. This was received with great approbation by all, excepting my wife, who I could perceive was not perfectly satisfied, as she expected to have had the pleasure of sitting at the head of the table, and carving all the meat for all the company. But, notwithstanding this, it is impossible to describe our good humour. I can't say whether we had more wit amongst us now than usual, but I am certain we had more laughing, which answered the end as well. One jest I particularly remember. Old Mr. Wilmot, drinking to Moses, whose head was turned another way, my son replied, Madam, I thank you, upon which the old gentleman, winking upon the rest of the company, observed that he was thinking of his mistress. At which jest I thought the two Miss Flamboroughs would have died with laughing. As soon as dinner was over, according to my old custom, I requested that the table might be taken away, to have the pleasure of seeing all my family assembled once more by a cheerful fireside. My two little ones sat upon each knee, the rest of the company by their partners. I had nothing now on this side of the grave to wish for. All my cares were over, my pleasures were unspeakable. It now only remained that my gratitude in good fortune should exceed my former submission in adversity. End of recording.